If you remain bewildered by last weekend's events in Russia, don't beat yourself up too badly. The spectacle of a gang of more or less paroled criminals led by a former hot dog cart vendor poised to march on Moscow was sufficient to make professional Russia analysts wish they'd spent their lives working on something less volatile, bizarre and confusing. Like, for example, pretty much anything. One especially startling subplot was the involvement of Belarus. Russia's neighbour is widely supposed to be Russia's puppet, but it appears to have been an intervention by Belarus's interminably serving tyrant Alexander Lukashenko that averted a more serious conflict. Certainly this has been the version of events Lukashenko has been keen to advertise and Russia is yet to dispute it. As part of whatever deal was done, the putative challenger to Russian President Vladimir Putin, Yevgeny Prigozhin, commander of infamous mercenary outfit Wagner Group, has been extended some sort of sanctuary in Belarus. It is less than three years since it looked like it was time for Lukashenko himself to consult the brochures of plausible bolt holes with opaque banking sectors and a lack of extradition treaties. Ahead of 2020's Belarusian presidential election, Lukashenko locked up his likeliest opponent, Sergei Sikhanovsky, and by most outside assessments lost the election anyway to Sikhanovsky's wife, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. Lukashenko rode out the subsequent protests with considerable support from Russia. How does Lukashenko's relationship with Putin really work? Has the war in Ukraine actually solidified Lukashenko's position? And is there any prospect of anybody else ever being president of Belarus? This is The Foreign Desk. 2nd April 1997, signature of the Belarus-Russian Treaty of Union, Alexander Lukashenko's great attempt to do a reverse takeover. This, of course, was before Putin was invented. This was the last days of Yeltsin. And he thought that with a weakening Russia, he might actually be able to move from Minsk to the Kremlin. I don't think that idea is dead. And I think his ambitions go well beyond survival, well beyond controlling Belarus. And recent events, of course, have played into his hands. It is a totalitarian state at the moment. But I am very surprised, perhaps bewildered, and I'm really proud of Belarusians who keep resisting. It is incredible. When the full-scale invasion started, uh, at least 80 sabotage actions were organized on the railway when railway partisans have stopped the movement of Russian troops, even though they faced uh, the death penalty. So I'd say that despite the state terror and basically the largest scale of repressions that Europe has seen in decades, Belarusians are still resisting. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined in the studio, first of all, by John Everard, a former British diplomat whose postings included a stint as UK ambassador to Belarus. I began by asking John to briefly describe Belarus's president. He's a big, heavy man. He's got an immense physical presence. And remember, he before he became president, he was a collective farm director. There's a kind of gruffness to him, a directness that communicates itself almost instantly. Not a great intellectual, but with a kind of native shrewdness, both for people, politics, situations, which has stood him in very good stead for a very long time. And effectively plucked from obscurity to face down the preferred candidates in the 1993 election. 
which, of course, he won, by people who were looking for stability, for a friendly face, for somebody to whom the Belgian electorate could relate. And sure enough, he provided that. Not a great intellectual is, of course, plucked straight from the lexicon of passive-aggressive British diplomatic euphemism. You were a British diplomat in Belarus. You represented Her Majesty's government, as it then was, in Minsk. While serving there as ambassador, did you ever meet him? Yes, I did, but in very constrained circumstances. I mean, Lukashenko, then as now, was surrounded by goons who went to great pains to prevent nasty Western ambassadors from putting difficult questions to the leader. I remember once being in the same room as him where he had just given a speech and I gave a kind of riposte. At that time, you could do these things in Belarus. Things have got worse since, of course. And he simply looked up at me, glared, you know, it oozed <laughs> hatred all over me and then refused to make eye contact for the rest of the evening. But there we go. What does he, as far as it's possible to tell, actually want? By which I guess I'm asking, does he have any vision whatsoever beyond his own survival? And at that one particular thing, he has, of course, proved, as of this broadcast at least, extremely adept. 2nd April 1997, signature of the Belarus-Russian Treaty of Union, Alexander Lukashenko's great attempt to do a reverse takeover. This, of course, was before Putin was invented. This was the last days of Yeltsin. And he thought that with a weakening Russia, he might actually be able to move from Minsk to the Kremlin. I don't think that idea is dead. And I think his ambitions go well beyond survival, well beyond controlling Belarus. And recent events, of course, have played into his hands. Well, indeed so. And that does bring us to the heart of the question that has been asked for a long time about the relationship between Lukashenko and Putin. And it has certainly been asked with, if not increasing urgency, then certainly increasing bewilderment over the last few days. What do we know of the dynamic there? There is a common assumption that Putin instructs him to jump and Lukashenko asks how high, but is it more nuanced than that? I think it's a lot more complex than that. I think that firstly, the dynamic has changed a great deal over recent years. One of Lukashenko's great gifts is he can smell blood from a very long way away. And he knows that Putin is getting weaker. The Russian army, of course, has been humiliated in Ukraine, is now heavily overstretched and has depleted a lot of munitions. It's no longer the fine fighting force that it once was. Well, was it ever? But anyway, certainly not now. Secondly, although Putin effectively saved his bacon back in 2020. Lukashenko knows very well that were the balloon to go up again at some point, Putin is in no position to do a repeat act. He's simply too weak to help now. So that whole aspect of the relationship has evaporated. And it does look very much as if Lukashenko is slowly gaining the upper hand. Look at it in terms of who holds what cards. I mean, Mm. Putin's position has been discussed interminably. Lukashenko, firstly, has an intact army. The Russian army has been badly mauled and is very overstretched. Lukashenko's army is intact. It's not brilliantly equipped, Mm. but it is actually there. Two, helpfully, his good friend Vladimir Vladimirovich has put Russian nuclear weapons on Belarusian territory. Now, that has been widely portrayed as an act of submission by Belarus. I wonder, if you've got someone's nuclear weapons on your territory, even if you haven't got the coast to launch them, you can do all kinds of things like 
deny access to them or even give them to other people who might be interested in how they all work. And thirdly, of course, he's now got Prigozhin, his new best friend, on Belarusian territory with certain of his cohort. If Russia does enter a period of instability, I think it's quite possible that Lukashenko could be a major player. You mentioned 2020, which was clearly quite an important year for Lukashenko. And in fact, had a few things fallen more differently, it might have been his last in office if he was lucky. But there were some other odd developments that year. Earlier, before the widely ridiculed presidential election of <laughs> later in 2020, he embarked on this process of, of seeming to want to pull away from Moscow. You know, he invited US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to visit Minsk. He sourced oil from Norway. He hosted the Royal Marines on a military exercise. What was going on there? He was broadening his options. He didn't want to be entirely reliant on Putin. He wanted to maintain Belarusian independence. Also, in the background, a long-forgotten debate that the Russians for years before then were pressing Belarus to accept a Russian airbase on Belarusian territory. And Lukashenko had been fighting this back successfully up until the great collapse of late 2020. This is a man who is quite prepared to do deals with whoever he needs to do deals with to maintain his own authority and to bolster his career. If that means doing deals with the West then so be it. How spooked then will he have been by the events of this week in Russia? Is there a way he can survive without Putin? Yes. Why should he be spooked at all? I suspect he's grinning all over his face. <laughs> I mean, Putin has been badly weakened, leaving Lukashenko with really quite a good political hand to play. And Lukashenko, as I say, may well have ambitions. There's a, a kind of urban myth that Lukashenko cannot survive without Putin. I just don't see that. I think Lukashenko could survive in all kinds of different ways, with or without the help from Moscow. It was an interesting straw in the wind, I thought, and it wasn't widely discussed. But Alexei Danilov, who is the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defence Council, Council. And with the Ukrainians, as we have learnt over the last year and a bit, you can never entirely rule out the possibility that they might just be having as much fun with this as they possibly can be. But he said if there were to be negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, he wouldn't rule it out that Lukashenko might play a role as a mediator or interlocutor. Is that really preposterous? No, that's not preposterous. I'm not sure how Zelensky personally would feel about that. I don't think he likes Lukashenko very much. But if you need a mediator, then Lukashenko would be perhaps at least as plausible as any of the other candidates. And just finally then, because I think this is another aspect of this situation, confusing though it is, this is particularly confusing. Where does Lukashenko perceive an advantage in hosting, if that is indeed what he is doing, somebody like Yevgeny Prigozhin? Because as long as Prigozhin is on his territory, he's under Lukashenko's control. And it, there may come situations where having somebody as violent, but with the military skills of Prigozhin, with an indeterminate number of his fighters still there, could be very useful for Lukashenko. Prigozhin has already said that he's quite prepared to teach the Belarusian armed forces all kinds of useful techniques for the future. So you've got sort of military training built in there. But would Prigozhin and Lukashenko ever unite at some point in a joint military front? It's not unthinkable. And just finally then, if we go back to where we came in with your descriptions of Lukashenko as a somewhat coarse and simple fellow, would it nevertheless be a mistake to underestimate him? Never, never underestimate Alexander Lukashenko. He may look coarse, but he has, as I said at the beginning, a shrewdness which has stood him in very good stead. The man is not stupid and he's a survivor. 
John Everard, thank you. As always, that was the former British ambassador to Belarus, John Everard. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. It is important to note that since Belarus's altogether dubious presidential election of 2020, large amounts of the Western world, including the European Union and the United States, no longer recognise Alexander Lukashenko as Belarus's president. The best-known opposition figurehead is the other main candidate of that 2020 election, Svetlana Sikhanovskaya, now president of the Coordination Council of Belarus and based in Vilnius. In June, I spoke to Svetlana Sikhanovskaya at the Globesec Forum in Bratislava. I asked her how she imagines Lukashenko's reign will end. The war in Ukraine cannot be over until Belarus is free. So, of course, the victory of Ukrainians, and for sure they will win with assistance and help of the democratic world, uh, the victory will weaken Putin and hence will weaken Lukashenko. And our uh, task of Belarusian democratic forces, of Belarusian people, is to be prepared for this moment, to have built structures, to have strategic plan, what to do in this day uh, X, for example. Yeah, But we also can suppose that changes in Belarus can come earlier than the victory of Ukraine. Uh, because we see turbulence inside the regime, we see how Recently, weakness or health problems of Lukashenko galvanized people's discussion again, you know, what to do, do we have plan, you know, how to act, you know, what forces will participate. And Lukashenko, three years passed, he for three years tried to suppress people, to humiliate people, to terrorize people, but people's energy is still there. So we uh, understand that in case, for example, let's imagine uh, Lukashenko will die tomorrow. The war in Ukraine is still continuing, Lukashenko dies, what will we do in this case? There will be a moment of turbulence inside the regime. We have to have our plan, but also we have to be sure that democratic countries also have their view what will be their steps. For example, sometimes now I'm asked by journalists and even some diplomats who will be after Lukashenko. It's wrong perception. Your question should be, what will we do at that moment to help Belarusians to reach free and fair elections? No matter who will be after Lukashenko, if uh, this person is not chosen by Belarusian people, he's or she's illegitimate. That was Svetlana Sikhanovskaya speaking to us at the Globesec Forum in June. I'm joined now by someone else who has tried to unseat Alexander Lukashenko at the ballot box. Andrei Sanakov, once Belarus's deputy foreign minister, ran against Lukashenko in the presidential election of 2010. Shortly afterwards, he was imprisoned and tortured. He joins the programme from Warsaw, where he lives in exile. Also joining us is Hanna Lubakova, an exiled Belarusian journalist and non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Hannah, I'll start with you. Do we entirely understand what President Lukashenko's role was in brokering the deal which persuaded Yevgeny Prigozhin to stand down at the weekend? What is in this for Lukashenko? I don't really think that Lukashenko had a lot of say here. Since Saturday, he has, of course, been reaping benefits by Acting as a mediator, at least this is something that he and his propaganda have been trying to show. So I think it was absolutely Kremlin's decision, because let's remember that Biskov first said that Putin's spokesperson said that Prigozhin will leave 
for Belarus, which is a very interesting phrase, by the way. And then Putin, in his Monday's address, he left Wagner militants with three options, whether sign a contract with the Minister of Defense, go home, or go to Belarus. So that was not even Lukashenko. What Lukashenko said on Tuesday, he basically said that Wagner militants would be used as instructors to teach Belarusian soldiers. So this is one idea, and I think on a different level, perhaps Lukashenko might be counting on them to help him, I don't know, with a potential wave of protests in Belarus in the future, in generally with the opposition. So that might be one of the benefits he might be counting on. Andre, broadening this question out a bit, there's a, a widespread perception that Lukashenko is basically just Putin's puppet, that he does strictly as he's told by the Kremlin. Is it that simple? Today it is, and I have to correct. The first information about this settlement, kind of settlement with Prigozhin, came from Lukashenko press service, not even from Kremlin. It was very bizarre, and I agree completely with Hannah that Lukashenko was ordered to play this role that he is playing. Then he tried to pretend that he was the main negotiator and middleman. But he is only surviving because of Putin. That's why he is completely dependent on Putin. He made Belarus completely dependent on Putin. He gave the territory of Belarus to the Russian military completely. And he can only survive if Putin supports him. There have always been the case, you know, when Lukashenko tried to use the strategy of pendulum, as I call it, uh, courting with the West and then with the East. He hates the West, but he is only scared of Kremlin, of Putin. So that is why no matter how he is now trying to figure out how to escape the worst scenario, he is still dependent on Kremlin, you know, developments, and especially in the war in Ukraine. Andre, just to follow that up quickly and on that point, it is still noticeable, though, that Belarus's military has not yet participated directly in the invasion of Ukraine. Is that because Lukashenko has made an independent decision of his own that he does not want that? Or is it just that Russia has not yet told him that that's what's going to happen? No, it's because of opposition, of Belarusian opposition. It's because of independent journalists like Hanna that explain clearly what will happen if Lukashenko give orders to cross the border into Ukraine and explain to the people what should be done. It's either to switch sides and the fight for Ukrainian and Belarusian liberty in Ukraine against Russia. But one thing is that army is not yet a political tool of Lukashenko. He simply doesn't have money to support uh, secret services, special services and the army. He does have the top brass in the army, Loyal, mostly loyal to Putin, by the way, not to him. So it also a risk factor for him. But no, it's not Lukashenko. It is both Putin and Lukashenko very much afraid of the consequences if this kind of order comes from Kremlin to Lukashenko and then Lukashenko retranslates it for the army. Hannah, it's really not that long since people were wondering, is this finally the beginning of the end for Alexander Lukashenko? This was after the most recent presidential election, and I do realise that there should be probably inverted commas around the word election in this instance. But since the invasion of Ukraine 16, 17 months ago now by Russia, has opposition 
to Lukashenko within Belarus become more difficult? Is there any meaningful opposition to him right now? No, of course, it's not possible to protest right now. It's not possible to organize any events or, look, even posting anything in social media, even actually liking some posts on social media became literally impossible and people are being jailed for that. Thousands and thousands of internet resources like websites, independent media, telegram channels have been announced, extremists have been banned and so on. So it is a totalitarian state at the moment. But I am very surprised, perhaps bewildered, and I'm really proud of Belarusians who keep resisting. It is incredible. When the full-scale invasion started, at least 80 sabotage actions were organized on the railway when railway partisans have stopped the movement of Russian troops, even though they faced the death penalty. And there are many, many more examples of how people do it, how people still resist. So I'd say that despite the state terror and basically the largest scale of repressions that Europe has seen in decades, Belarusians are still resisting. And this is something that we cannot forget about because one thing is the regime, one thing is Lukashenko, who is completely loyal, who helps the Kremlin. And another thing are, of course, people who are against the uh, deployment of Belarusian troops in Ukraine, right? As we discussed previously, they're against the deployment of nuclear weapons. And as I've already been able to discuss with them, many of them are also against the potential transfer of Wagner militants inside Belarus. Andre, all that being said, how much impact does, I guess, what we can think of as Belarus's government in exile have inside Belarus now? This is, of course, the coterie led by Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, who we have interviewed several times on this program now. Are they still regarded as the obvious alternative to Lukashenko? Uh, let me continue with your previous question, that there is a really horrible situation of concentration camp because really people are being chased all over the country. And the most notorious, I would say, Gestapo, modern-day Gestapo Gubazik, which is the Department on Organized Crime and Corruption. There is a horrible figure that, according to our human rights defenders, there are about two arrests going on in Belarus every day. And if the Belarusian territory became a concentration camp, then there is a special places for Belarusian opposition, for Belarusian resistant fighters that are now being kept in prison. And the figure is also horrible. It's about eight to 9,000. I think that today, first of all, I don't recognize any government in exile because I think that there are imposters and they don't have any impact on what is going on in Belarus. What is having an impact on Belarusian situation is our volunteers that are fighting together with Ukrainians on Ukrainian soil against Russia, and they are claiming, and they are quite clear about that, that they are fighting not only for Ukraine, but also for the freedom of Belarus. What has impact is the sanctions, and unfortunately, I don't see any sanctions being introduced recently. For more than a year, Lukashenko has not been included into any meaningful sanction list by European Union. European Union has been inactive on Belarus, and we have all major leaders of the opposition in prison today. So what could produce an impact is really strict, vigorous sanctions with very moral and one demand, release all political prisoners. That's it. 
Hannah, what do you think? Is there an argument that the circumstances have been changed so much by the war in Ukraine that that opposition movement represented and led by Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya doesn't quite have the purchase on the imagination that it once did? Well, I think if we generally imagine the impact that the democratic forces have, and I I don't only mean Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya or the Coordination Council, this is also what Andrei Sanikov does, this also involves other figures, so all of them together, but also together with human rights defenders, media, and so on. So all of these kind of initiatives, including civil society, do have impact, I think, on people inside the country. This is because of the information. People do not support the deployment of troops, or they also know what Lukashenko is doing, and so on. There are examples of that, right? The reason why Belarusians have not given up yet, even though they cannot protest, I think it's it's because of this movement that still exists. And again, if we look at this from a wider perspective, I think there is impact. So this is important. The work of Svetlana Tikhanovska and other democratic forces have several dimensions here. So it's first of all to explain to the world what's happening inside the country, to distinguish between Belarusians and the regime who is fully involved in the war. And of course, I think there has been some success here. Well, there are many stereotypes and of course, there are conversations about building some sort of an iron curtain and isolate Belarusian's father. But I think the world also kind of understands that this is an oppressed society. There is also other work in lobbying for increased pressure or increased support for pressure on the regime, but also increased support for civil society. Some justice efforts, most recently, another very influential political figure, Pavel Latushka, has submitted the facts about the forcible transfer of Ukrainian children, not only to Russia, but also to Belarus. So there are examples of that. Perhaps I wouldn't be as categorically critical as my colleague previously, but I think, of course, you know, more can be done. And I think there is now more understanding. And also, of course, there is some disappointment and frustration because the victory, immediate victory didn't happen in 2020. Instead, the repressions have been happening, but also because Belarus is now facing a real grave threat to independence and sovereignty. I think it's important for all of them to unite and, you know, kind of have joint efforts to prevent this from happening. And just finally, to come back to you, Andre, as you'll be aware, there has been a lot of speculation about the state of Lukashenko's health. But that said, and for all it seems like he's been there forever, he is only 68 years old. Does everything he represents, though, does it necessarily pass with him? Is there a succession plan as he sees it? Or is has he been in the job so long that he sees himself and the state as basically the same thing? You know that he is immortal and he is eternal. So there is no succession plan. He doesn't think in these categories, you know. I'm laughing when uh, there is a plan in the West, let's offer him some security guarantees. He would not believe in any security guarantees <laughs> of any Western country, even even from Russia. So he has to stick to the power. He doesn't have any succession plan. You know, we're not talking about normal people. We are talking about criminals. They are not the elected officials. They are self-proclaimed officials. They usurp the power. By they, I mean Putin also. But one difference between Putin and Lukashenko system, which was clearly shown by Prigozhin and his, and his march, is that Lukashenko have more centralized, personified system than Putin. So when he collapses, and 
the rumors about his health are not rumors. They have been confirmed several times, and he was visibly feeling bad when he participated in this live shield that Putin organized on the 9th of May around himself. And Prigozhin did show that there are groups of influence in Russia that are able not to obey to Putin's orders. But there are no, no such groups in, in Belarus, except opposition, of course. But I'm talking about the inside groups, those inner circles. No, and that's why when he falls, the system is bound to collapse. I, simply, I don't know any other examples in the history where that system can survive such a personalistic power. Andrei Sanikov and Hannah Lubakova, thank you both for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.